Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Institute of World Politics, one-hour seminar on winning without war. The Institute of World Politics in Washington, D.C. has a informal motto, which is educating diplomats, warriors, and spies for the 21st century. Our idea is to make sure that we America is uh, strong and independent and powerful and wins any challenge without war. My name is Michael Maybach. I um, was hired by the founders of the Intel Corporation way back in 1983 and spent most of my career as a vice president of the Intel Corporation. After that, I was the, the president of the European American Business Council, and now I'm in, uh, in service of civic and other organizations, including serving on the IWP Board of Trustees. Uh, I am a graduate of IWP, so I can speak highly of what a fine education one gets at IWP. Today, we're going to survey the 21st century challenges to America's leadership in the world and how to meet those challenges. The ocean of history brings to every generation new and powerful waves. The questions are, what are the critical dimensions of these threats we face today? These waves that are crashing upon us on our shores. They include the challenge of China, a resurgent Russia, nuclear weapons in Iran and North Korea, radical Islam, and now a global pandemic, something we haven't seen in 100 years. Questions are not, are these challenges real or must we deal with them? They are real and we must deal with them. The questions really are, what are the critical dimensions of these threats? Who understands them and who will have future leaders prepared not only to survive, but master these historic waves. And of course, we want that to be the case with American leaders. So in other words, can America win without war? Here to discuss these challenges and winning without war are John Lanchowski, our founder and president of the Institute of World Politics, Dr. Frank Marlowe, our academic dean, and Dr. David Glancy, a professor at IWP as well. So I have three questions, gentlemen, and I'm going to go through those one by one with you. First of all, thank you for joining us to speak with our audience. Please offer more details about the challenges America face and what it means to win without war. John, would you like to start? Well, um, I would first like to observe that um, the whole concept of winning without war is a very ancient one. The, uh, the famous Chinese sage Sun Tzu, who was the author of the famous book, uh, The Art of War, wrote uh, in that book that to defeat one's enemy without the use of force is the acme of skill. Um, we here in the United States don't, you know, how, however many of us have read that book, our foreign policy and national security culture in the United States has not taken that particular aphorism seriously. 
And uh, we tend to have developed a, a materialistic foreign policy culture, which focuses principally on arms and money and the diplomacy concerning arms and money. In other words, the instruments of hard power to the neglect of many of the instruments of soft power that uh, are amongst those that have to be employed if we, if we want to have an integrated strategy that can enable us to protect our interests and prevail if necessary in international conflicts without having to go to war to do so. We at IWP take this, this uh, aphorism of Sun Tzu very seriously, and we may be amongst the only schools in the United States that actually teaches our students how to win without war. And so a lot of this has to do with paying attention to the many different arts of statecraft, which, we, uh, which is our term referring to the different instruments of national power, military, economic, Dip diplomacy, public diplomacy, the various forms of strategic influence, and uh, including uh, non-violent uh, you know, non warfare, political warfare, psychological warfare, uh, ideological warfare, and so on, uh, as well as you know, other, other instruments, intelligence, counterintelligence, uh, cyber strategy, and so on and so forth. And so we uh, study these matters in the context of current challenges to the United States, such as that of the of rising China. And, uh, uh, and, and I believe that if, if we pay attention to some of the lessons of history, particularly some of the lessons of the Cold War, where not all the time, but some of the time, we conducted some of the key instruments uh, in that orchestra, uh, we were able to win that war without firing a shot, so to speak, although there were proxy wars, of course. But um, uh, some of the decisive elements that we used uh, have been systematically neglected, and we at IWP are trying to keep up an institutional memory of the best practices in these different arts of statecraft so that we can keep the peace defend our interests in our way of life. Uh, thank you. Uh, Frank Marlowe, would you like to comment? Sure. Um, you know, let me say it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, to build off of, of what John had said, uh, I think the other way, approach you have to take is to look at the, we have to win without war because our opponents are trying to win without war. Um, our opponents are not launching major military Versions, a couple of notable exceptions, but for the most part, that's not the way they're behaving. Um, the threats are not solely military. Um, you have, and in fact, the, our, our chief adversaries are, are behaving in such a way as to take actions that are deliberately below the threshold at which we are willing to take military action. Um, you've heard the, many have heard the term hybrid war. That is exactly the kind of approach they're taking. They're using going right up to that edge, but then stopping. Getting to us to a point where we just can't quite justify using military force for something that really isn't major enough to justify it. What we used to call brinksmanship. Absolutely, that, that's exactly what it is. And, and they are taking approaches 
that are very old approaches, but ones that are quite effective. A lot of people refer to it as the salami slicing method, right? You, you take just a little and, and keep going back time after time, but never a big enough chunk that, it's, it, that, that you spark that major counter reaction. Very good. David? And I think, you know, both, again, thank you for uh, hosting, Michael. Uh, thanks for our audience for listening in today. Um, appreciate what uh, John and Frank have talked about. And I think there's a real problem with a lot of leaders and policymakers where, and even the general public, we see conflict too often in the U.S. as being black or white. We either at peace or we're at war, meaning, you know, military conflict with another state. There's a whole range, gray area of competition to conflict, sometimes with allies, you know, even economic competition, but it gets more and more aggressive when we're talking about our adversaries and harsher competitors. And so being able to compete in this area of competition conflict, the U.S. over the last 20, 30 years really hasn't been on the field. We've relied on the military uh, far too often, and we've often not had a strategic approach to some of these major challenges. And that's led to a loss of life and the loss of you know, both blood and treasure. Um, and it's gotten us to use the military more than we probably should have. So you know, what we're talking about are going back to some of the instruments of statecraft and putting together a strategy so that you don't have to use the military force. You can shape the international environment in a way that is beneficial to the US and our allies without actually having to use the military. And it's understandable, uh, leaders, you know, the military can provide decisive impact and the results are ready, readily apparent. The use of some of these other instruments of statecraft can take time and they're harder to measure the effectiveness. But if it's done in a coordinated fashion over time, they can be very successful. Very good, thank you. I wanna to go to the second question we have for you today. Having suggested why it's so important to win without war, and I've liked all three of your sort of focuses on that, including the hybrid war, brinksmanship, and this sort of life is not black and white, as David pointed out. Uh, why is it so important to win without war? My next question is how America can win without war. What, what are the things we're doing that we have to keep doing better? What are the things we're not doing so well? You know, for example, the president's announced the Space Force. I wonder if we should have a, a, a biogenetics force now that we have this pandemic. So John, what's your, what are your thoughts about what America needs to be do, doing now uh, to step up its game? Well, um, thank you, Michael. Uh, I um, one thing I would like to stress is the importance that we maintain a credible military deterrent, that we maintain strength across the board. Uh, you know, George Washington and others have said that the best way to preserve the peace is to prepare for war. And uh, one of the greatest mistakes that one can make in attempting to achieve peace is to send the bad guys around the world uh, signals of weakness and yeah. many ways of sending them. And one of them, of course, is to neglect the acquisition of arms, neglect training, neglect readiness, 
and uh, uh, to, to be behind the eight ball when it comes to, to uh, the development of technological capabilities. And, and then one has, to, one has to be able to send out signals of strength. And strength, of course, are not only materially in terms of, of, of having that military power as, as an ultimate backstop, but maintaining one's uh, economic vibrancy, uh, and perhaps most importantly, maintaining the moral, political, ideological strength of the nation, which is what sends a decisive signal of strength to the world. It is a signal of one's will to defend oneself. And if, if we are so internally divided, if our, if our adversaries come to the conclusion that uh, so many of the elites of our country hate our country yeah. because we once had slavery, uh, as if nobody else in the world had slavery. Everybody uh, else in the world had Western slavery. civilization that was the one that got rid of slavery yeah. uh, and not the others. Uh, and, and so uh, having uh, what, what I consider to be a, a, a morally ordered and informed patriotism and being able, which, which is, is the demonstration of that will to defend oneself, sending that signal to the world is absolutely decisive. And so uh, I, I think that, you know, developing the one place, there are some places where we have not developed strength. We, we have been extremely weak over decades in the whole field of counterintelligence. We permit foreign spies to just have the run of this country. We've been incredibly weak in this. We give out visas. We let foreign spies. There are 25,000 Chinese intelligence collectors in Silicon Valley alone. This is, this is breathtaking. It is, it is beyond the scope of anything that occurred during the Cold War. And that doesn't even count the cyber espionage that's been going on. And to add to this, John, just some people that say, let's just have open borders completely. My gosh, nothing, nothing here to defend. That's right. That's right. Anyway, there are uh, having a capability, uh, a diplomatic capability, not only to uh, have good relations with governments, but to have good relations with people and to ensure that, pe that, that foreign public opinion is not disinformed about us. Uh, and and that that we uh, cultivate sympathizers around the world with American ideals and with the reality of America. And when we have those sympathizers, it's another form of a tremendous form of strength. David wanted to make a comment. No, I think I really appreciate your comments, John. And I, you know, absolutely, the military—that's uh, something through history we've learned, and other uh, the Byzantine Empire and others um, having a strong military is important to being successful diplomacy and with your other activities. Um, allies are hugely important. Um, you know, being able to cultivate and have strong allied relations, being able to communicate and talk to other populations around the world that shares that we can share an understanding, that's gonna be hugely important. The uh, last week I read a report that uh, a Chinese diplomat had noted that in the competition conflict between the US the side that was going to win was going to be the one that had the most friends. 
And I thought that was an interesting point. And it should be a strength of the U.S. where we uh, have goodwill. We've done lots of good things for the world, but we also have to work on that. If you don't work on your allied relationships, you don't work on your public diplomacy, mm-hmm. they definitely atrophy. And so, you know, this is something where having strong alliances, having strong friends, that uh, helps promote the economic freedom, diplomacy or di- democracy, um, and that's great for the world. Yeah. Um, I think if we could, could we get back to just uh, some of the talk about some of the threats that we've seen and that we're, you know going to be facing? Um, and possibly, Frank, could you talk about that a little? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think um, the way I was going to approach this is before you start answering the question of, of how to do it, the first thing you got to do is understand what is your, what is it you're dealing with and, and what do you define as success, right? Um, in my view, um, you can look at Russia, you look at China, you look at the, all the threats, Michael, that you laid out at the, the outset here. Um, but what they all amount to, uh, ultimately, fundamentally, is about what is the, the, global, the future of the global system going to look like, right? Um, what, what we're seeing right now is arguably one of the most sustained attacks in decades on the basic functioning of the rules that we understand and take for granted today on how the international system works. So you're seeing the subversion or the replacement of international organizations and international bodies, whether you're talking about the Chinese intimidating the the World Health Organization, as we saw a few months ago, um, whether you're seeing creation of rival institutions like the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank as a way of of sidelining the IMF and the World Bank, right? Belt and Road and uh, South China Sea. Yeah, Belt, Road, Belt and Road to, to some degree in, in terms of attempting to create a new sort of international economic order. But the deliberate use of methods to try to subvert uh, international organizations. Think about the, the efforts that the Chinese are undertaking to marginalize ASEAN, right? So, so that ASEAN can't take a hard firm stand against them. Look at what the Russians are trying to do, developing inroads with... The, some of our Eastern European and, and Turkey allies try to marginalize NATO. Okay, the, the point here is to take international organizations that we counted on and make them useless, right? Because they know most Americans generally talk well about these organizations and want to work through these organizations. Yeah. Another thing they're trying to do is reorganize the, the global economic system. You're seeing a return of mercantilism and, and neocolonialism, right? particularly in, in Africa, the Chinese have been incredibly active and are incredibly are doing incredible damage to the peoples of, of those countries. Um, you're also seeing effort on the Russians' part to use pipeline politics as a way of, of reorganizing international economic activity in a way that benefits the Russian state. Um, and then finally, I think you're seeing an attack on the, the general rules-based order that we've taken into account, whether it's Chinese efforts to take over vast, ter- vast amounts of international waters in the South China Sea, whether you're talking about Russia and China attempting to create a condominium of some kind in the Arctic, where the, the, the Russians have made incredibly grandiose claims of continental shelf control uh, over 
what is essentially international water in the in the Arctic Ocean. These are huge, huge issues, and it's fundamentally about who's going to set the rules for how nations are going to behave over the next hundred years. Excellent. Um, did, David, do you want to add to that, or should we go to the next question? Um, if you don't mind, and uh, I do think that you know these challenges are across the board, and it's you know you mentioned the Iranian nuclear. It's also Iranian political warfare and support of proxies and support of favorable uh, elements and governments around the region that are uh, against the U.S. interests and those of our allies. Um, Frank mentioned the Russians and the Chinese activities. You know, I'd also throw in the uh, Russian efforts to, you know, support separatist movements and uh, turmoil within states as well as breaking up and causing tensions within the European Union and NATO. And, you know, again, this is something that the Soviets did, trying to drive a wedge between uh, the U.S. and our allies in the 80s and before that. Um, and we're seeing this behavior again. And so, you know, it's across the board. It's political. It's economic. It's informational. It's diplomatic. And, you know, we do need to refocus, I think, on our national security establishment and our, on these threats and, you know, not just defer to, well, there's a military solution. While again, you know, certainly keeping the military strong and having that as a last resort if we need it so that we can win decisively. But that's, um, these other areas are going to need attention. And this is something, you know, that unfortunately we don't have uh, a lot of leaders and uh, people actually working in the foreign policy establishment that necessarily understand our history, understand these instruments of statecraft and how they're used. And uh, this can have real world implications and problems. Um, just two examples, and I'll uh, let you go on to the further questions, but these things have a real impact. Um, back in 2005, reportedly President Bush decided to not have the U.S. after initially starting to support moderate elements in the Iraq elections, um, that the U.S. ended up withdrawing support and not having any role in supporting moderate elements in the Iraqi elections, all the while the Iranians were supporting their proxies. So the U.S. wasn't on the field. The moderates narrowly lost and we weren't anywhere to be involved. Um, if, you know, and this was President Bush's, reportedly President Bush's decision after some pushback from Capitol Hill. Um, but this is, you know, the U.S. did take the role in Italian elections after World War II to try to keep the communists out of power. This is something that states do. And, you know, I don't, I hate to kind of have revisionist history, but uh, what would the Middle East look like over the last 15 years if, Moderates had won that first election in 2005 in Iraq. So, you know, that has real world consequences. The Obama administration not necessarily seeing the Russians as a threat or how they might uh, react to or perceive the U.S., not doing enough to uh, be aware of or counter um, or at least kind of understand that the Russians might take actions against the U.S. and how they might do that. I think we're seeing some of the consequences of that. So these are real world implications and real world uh, situations where 
not understanding our history, not understanding how instruments of statecraft can be used, not understanding who our adversaries are, can have a decisive impact. And really, they do matter. This is all very helpful. I think one of the messages our audience is hearing is, it isn't that you have a civilian economy and then you have a defense department. You have lots of agencies and pieces of government, including, including uh, uh, track three organizations, et cetera, but all the tools of diplomacy and statecraft. And war really, in, in part, is sort of a failure of all those. What we want to do is win without war, as we're saying. This moves us nicely to our third question before we open this up to audience questions, and that is, what do future leaders need to know and to do successfully to counter some of the challenges we've discussed? What do they need to know and how, how to do those things? John, we're gonna start with you and then Frank and then David. Well, I think that what is really important is to understand the strategic environment and understand the genetic code, particularly of our adversaries. You know, one of the principal uh, the first thing that you do in foreign policy is you figure out who your friends and your adversaries are. And, uh, and then you can begin to construct some kind of uh, an architecture for how you deal with what the adversaries are doing. Uh, one, one dimension of, of, of the current reality that, we, that, that I haven't really, I don't think we've mentioned much about is the degree to which uh, the Chinese have exercised extraordinary influence within our country because of their strategy of, of, of enriching certain people and sectors of our economy and, and, and politically neutralizing them. Uh, the Soviets tried doing this during, World, during the Cold War uh, and they succeeded with some people, but, but because we've left the door so open to the Chinese, you have uh, vast sectors of our economy that is essentially almost owned uh, by, by the Chinese and have been politically neutralized. And so uh, you have former secretaries of state, secretaries of defense, and even directors of central intelligence who have been directly or indirectly on Beijing's payroll and and, and, and who've been downplaying any threat from China for the last five administrations. Uh, and it wasn't until this administration came along that people started telling some truth about all of this. Yeah. And, and, and so one has to understand the, the strategic environment. You have to understand what are the strategic intentions and purposes, particularly of your adversaries. You have to understand what I like to call the fast balls, the curve balls, and the knuckle balls that they can throw at us, which is what are their instruments of statecraft? Uh, what can we expect? When, when, when I came into government in, in, in the Reagan State Department in 1981, the US intelligence community was not collecting any intelligence on Soviet propaganda, disinformation, and active measures, which was a KGB term uh, referring to um, you know, disinformation, forgeries, covert influence operations, and the like. And uh, it's amazing to me when a large part of the Cold War was fought on that battlefield that we weren't paying any attention to it. And, and so uh, the, one has to really face the realities of the, this global strategic environment first. Then you have to study systematically and learn how to deal with each dimension of it. 
which is why you know, neglected instruments like counterintelligence, public diplomacy, and strategic influence, the, the, the counterintelligence being a fundamentally defensive measure, the, the public diplomacy and strategic influence being offensive measures, and, and even and certain different aspects of economic strategy, which are both offensive and defensive. But, but all of these have been neglected. And so what we at IWP try to do is teach all of them so that all of our students are aware of the different sections of the orchestra, the different instruments. Right. That's, and that is what's absolutely key. And some of this is coming up now, you know, the Confucius Institutes, Chinese news agencies are no longer seen as true press agencies. Um, Chinese students in major research and development labs, uh, our trade policy, which unfortunately over many administrations, ever since China got in the WTO was simply not uh, demanding that the Chinese live up to the WTO commitments, et cetera. That's right, that's right. We'll go to you next. Sure, um, you know, I certainly couldn't disagree with anything John said. I think that's all absolutely critical um, sorts of things that, that future leaders need to know. A couple of the things I think they need to keep in mind. Um, the, the analogy I always give is, you can't you're, you can't win a, a football game if your team never crosses half field, right? At some point, you have to transition to the strategic offensive. Uh, we play defense. We see ourselves as defensive people. We don't like seeing ourselves as being assertive or forward or with a forward agenda. Certainly not one that seems strategically competitive to an adversary. We don't like playing that as Americans. We have to. Uh, Every lesson of history says, if all you do is play defense, you're going to lose in the end. And you have to make a decision. In, in, democracy, in democracy in America, Tocqueville talks about this. Because we're an egalitarian society, we tend to see other societies as we're all on the equal plane, and therefore we are pretty nice, I guess you would say, compared to some uh, mindsets around the world. But please continue. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're predisposed to... You know, kind of minding our own business, perhaps, or just not wanting to to seem like we're the the heavy, we're the bad guy, uh, or the assertive guy. And so we've got to get out of that mindset. That's, in my view, that that's uh, first step you got to take. Um, you know, the other thing we got to start doing a better job of is integration. Um, you got to figure out how to bring all those pieces together. John uses the analogy of the orchestra, and that's that's uh, very apt. Um, Another thing I think you've got to you got to keep in mind is there has to be a moral dimension to this. Um, you have to engage in moral reasoning. Um, you cannot look at this as a purely Machiavellian, purely uh, quasi-realist kind of mindset. It's not going to last. The American people won't put up with it, and you're not going to have any sustained success. So you've got to make. The, the future leaders in this country stop and think about how do you how do you take actions, especially strategically offensive actions, that are consistent with our traditional American values. You have to be strategic offense to be on the strategic offense, but without war. We yeah. that's sort of a lose-lose. We want to we want to win without war. That's the theme here today. Absolutely. But you can go on the strategic offensive without using military 
force. And, and remember, military force has a huge role to play in this as supporting arm. What we're talking about is war, not non-military, right? The military can always be a supportive element of a lot of things, and it does. It's just not going kinetic, right? Um, and then the final thing I think we have to have to teach future leaders uh, is something that I'm going to use a, a phrase that uh, David and I had a, a common professor who, a man named Kerry uh, Lord. And Kerry Lord's, um, he's an old friend of the Institute as well. Written a book, I think, on, on the art of war, is it? He wrote a book called The Modern Prince. The Modern Prince, yeah. It's a tremendous book, and it, it's one of my all-time favorites. Um, but he used to talk about the, the role of prudence, right? Prudence being the practical application of political virtue um, when it comes to international affairs. And that's, that, that skill is something that really, really has disappeared in this country. Um, among the political leadership, among yeah. policy establishment. It's, a, uh, it's an old-fashioned kind of, you, people don't want to talk about virtue, they don't want to talk about prudence. They, they yeah. combine prudence with hesitancy or, or timidity or something like that, and it's nothing like that. It's simply recognizing I've got a lot of lousy choices between, there's no perfect solution, and so yeah. what we have to do is find something that is is virtuous or at least as virtuous as we can be but also practical actually is going to accomplish something and having that skill requires experience it requires uh, education and it requires discipline it requires iwp <laughs> well that too <laughs> david go ahead thanks no i think that that's great and you know having a strategic approach and a strategic mindset so that you don't have to make decisions, you know, on the fly. So doing planning, doing, having a plan, having an integrated approach. Um, the good thing is, you know, this, what we're talking about isn't necessarily rocket science. And these are all things that we've been able to do at times successfully in our past. So this isn't out of the American character. This isn't something that can't be done. This isn't something that it does require leadership. Um, you know, you do need to know, as John said, you need to know your adversaries, and then you need to have a plan to, as Frank was saying, how do you go on the offensive? Um, we need leadership in Congress. We need leadership in the executive branch. You're seeing some of that with Congress actually uh, pushing the executive branch to do more on understanding the threats from China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and other strategic influence threats. So the FBI is doing a bit more in this act area. So we're understanding that. Um, having a policy organization that can bring these elements together, either at the NSC or some other organization, that's required. I mean, we can have intelligence agencies and others carrying out some of these activities, um, but some of it's going to be overt. Some of it's going to be through the Commerce Department, the State Department, Treasury, law enforcement, um, justice, the Defense Department, military diplomacy and training and equipping are huge uh, activities that the military does that we could do better and coordinate it better, but that's very important to helping support friends and allies and to help build their strength and also build understanding with uh, between countries. So, you know, but we need a policy organization, I think, to bring this together either, again, 
something quick like the NSC could be done, um, you know, through presidential, you know, reorganization. You could get a congressionally mandated organization. Since we lost U.S. Information Agency at the end of the 1990s, we really haven't had a group that has been focused on public diplomacy. There's uh, undersecretary within the State Department, but you don't have an independent voice who's looking out for both some of the offensive political warfare activities that we might want to do, but also the softer side, public diplomacy, helping promote the U.S. image, helping promote understanding of the U.S., um, and that's, I think, hugely important. Okay, gentlemen, I'm going to go to the questions now, and we're getting a lot of good questions. I can see them in front of me. So if you don't mind, I'm going to ask questions, and you can jump in, whoever wants to answer these. All three of you don't have to answer them. So we'll, we'll, <laughs> this is this is from Anonymous. Um, do you think there's a need and opportunity for a NATO-type alliance in the Pacific to counter Chinese threats? So um, we did have, at one point, CETO, I believe. Um, and we have the ASEAN, which is more diplomatic. But somebody want to kind comment on sort of a, a NATO in the Pacific, how, how useful is that counterproductive? Any, any thoughts on that, gentlemen? Frank, you want to take it? <laughs> oh, sure, throw me under the bus. Sure, uh, happy to. Um, sure, <laughs> thanks for the easy one there, John. Uh, I, I think there's, that's a, that's a, a challenging idea, um, not in the least because I think you're not, the, the, the countries in the region are not quite at the point where they're ready to make a jump like that. Um, they're certainly getting closer uh, over the past decade. I think the, the hope within the, the Pacific, um, within especially Southeast Asia, uh, that, you, that a Chinese peaceful rise was possible. I think it's 10 years ago that was an article of faith or at least a hope. I think most most countries now realize that's probably not going to happen. And so I think we're closer in to that kind of organization, but I'm not convinced that a formal alliance like that is necessary. Um, I think you're already seeing a lot of informal ones and they're not just bilateral. Um, you look at the Australians, the Japanese, and the Indians are working together in ways that five years ago would have been unthinkable. You're seeing ASEAN reaching out to the United States much more vigorously on ASEAN states reaching out to the United States much more vigorously than they ever have before. Uh, and so I don't know that a, as a provocative move like that is going to fly very well with some of the, the nations in the region. Um, so I think we're better off at this point sticking to a more informal type of trilateral or, or multilateral type thing rather than a formal organization like NATO. I think David has a comment on this. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think that's a good starting point, and thank you for taking that, Frank. Um, the you know the U.S. is doing uh, working on economic side, uh, diplomatic side. I think that's going to be as important um, bilaterally, militarily, working with different countries. That may be the way to go for the near term. Um, but the U.S. can play a role. The U.S. was uh, important in helping bring South Korea and Japan closer together uh, a few years ago. With the U.S. absence, their relations have started to fray a bit, and that's not good for the U.S. So, you know, the U.S. having a presence, the U.S. being engaged on all these fronts, 
Um, we're working with Japan in, uh, in development and economic uh, issues, um, as was mentioned, also India, Australia, India, um, and the U.S. working together too. So, and this is going to Southeast Asia, but also Africa. So, you know, I think leveraging our uh, diplomatic and economic can have a big impact, um, encouraging military dialogue and doing things, you know, with coalitions of the willing without necessarily a formal treaty that can go a long way. Yeah. And you know, this Wuhan virus, which we call COVID over here, but it came from the town of Wuhan, has really uh, shaken up people, I think, in terms of how the Chinese behaved in the W the World Health Organization, et cetera. I have another question. Well, and just, oh, just one more thing. I mean, I think on that, that's important that you bring that up. Um, you know, how do we take advantage of some of the Chinese missteps? And they're, they've been very aggressive in their uh, diplomacy and threatening countries. They were threatening Australia that wanted to do uh, an investigation. Yeah. They've threatened China, uh, Canada over the detain, uh, detainment and trial of the executive from Huawei, highlighting Chinese bad behavior and just telling the truth is something that, you know, we can do as academics, but really you need someone like the U.S. government probably highlighting this for other governments and for the populations of all, the publics of other governments. Okay. Um, Michael, I wanted to just mention, uh, Michael, I wanted to mention one brief item, and that is that I think there are some sectors of what is NATO-like uh, structures, uh, but, but wouldn't be a, a complete sort of Southeast or, you know, South, South, you know, or East Asia alliance and East Asia and Pacific alliance. But for example, during the Cold War, we had a, uh, an organization called COCOM, the yeah. Coordinating Committee on Multilateral Export Control. Export control. Yeah, which was a, 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 a cooperative arrangement amongst the advanced industrial countries of the West, including Japan, for example, to prevent uh, the transfer of sensitive technologies to the Soviet bloc. And uh, it was designed to prevent people of one country from undercutting everybody else in order to get a market share uh, by selling to the Soviets. And we all decided, all right, there are going to be certain technologies that we're not going to sell. And there are some of these things that we simply shouldn't be selling or letting the Chinese steal. Uh, and and uh, I think we need to develop some collaborative relationships that have to be on the formal side that may not necessarily be the, the, the exact equivalent of a full-fledged military alliance. Okay. The next question I have for you, gentlemen, is this. Um, as we know, the, um, we actually have a ruler for life in Xi in China. Uh, there is no, there's no sense of any uh, self-government or democratic republic, et cetera. And we have a very different situation where we have popular vote, Pixar leadership in the in the House and Senate and the presidency and the Supreme Court, et cetera. How much of an advantage or disadvantage or probably a little bit of both is it for the, the fact that the Chinese are really unidimensional, I'm sure they have internal politics is pretty fierce, but they don't have popular government and we are swayed by popular sentiments. So it's, it's really two different kinds of planets, I guess you would say. 
Well, may, may I just observe here that uh, the kind of government that China has today has one very important strategic advantage. It is capable of conducting a, a, a long-term strategy. Whereas as Winston Churchill said, democracies are incapable of conducting a consistent policy for anything more than about five years at a time. Uh, and, and, and I think that that's a, a, a very important advantage. But and, and another one, of course, is that they, as the Russians have been doing, uh, can uh, play upon our public sentiment, can work on the psychological disarmament of our people and our, our elected leadership. They can, uh, they, they can play all kinds of propaganda and, and active measures games against us, which uh, where we don't have the exact reciprocal capability. However, uh, the one great vulnerability that they face is that, and this is, a, and I'm specifically talking about China here, but the same goes for North Korea and to a little lesser extent to, with Russia, their fear of their own people. Yeah. They, the Chinese Communist Party fears the Chinese people more than anything. And they fear their people absorbing the truth. They fear their people absorbing democratic ideas and coming to the conclusion that their rulers are, are an illegitimate government. And, and we can take advantage of, of, of that kind of, of vulnerability. All right. uh, thank you. David and Frank both want to comment, John. So yes. Go ahead. David? David, you're on mute. So I'll let the dean go first. No, no, no. You, you had your hand up first. Okay. All right. Thanks. The, um, I just, I think, you know, it's important to understand the Chinese government isn't um, all-powerful, isn't omnipotent. They have pressures, too. They do things that are short-sighted. They, you know, sometimes I think we in the U.S. Um, we have a we sometimes do mirror imaging, which is to our detriment. But we also sometimes let our biases about you know what um, we think the other government's uh, strengths are maybe overmatch what they really are. And um, you know, they yes, they have some ability to do a longer strategic plan because they don't have some of the competing forces that we do with elections and all, but they also have internal pressures, they make mistakes, they can uh, you know, act in short-sighted ways. We just need to be able to take advantage of those when they do make mistakes. And, and again, I think John's point was really important that when we're talking here with our conflict with you know, the Russian government, with the Chinese government, these are with the government and their policies that are trying to have malign influence in against the U.S. and in the world community. It's not the people and that we really need to be clear about separating that. And this is where public diplomacy, some of our information, uh, strategic influence operations, the hardest targets that we have have you know, gotten harder over the last five to 10 years. They've really um, made it so it's been harder for us to get our message and our information to these countries just as they've expanded their activities in the U.S. and in the West. But the Soviet Union was a, certainly a hard target, and we were able to make inroads there. So just because something's a hard target doesn't mean we shouldn't be going after it. Uh, Frank? 
Yeah, uh, I, th- I think I, I agree with a lot of what, what both of you have said. Uh, what I would say is every, every form of government has strengths and weaknesses. And when you're looking to develop your strategy, you have to understand that. Um, and certainly the continuity that, the, that Putin has or that, that you, you have with the CCP is, is very important. But that's also a weakness in some ways. Um, when you're not having fresh looks at what you're doing, you tend, it's real easy to get real stale. Uh, it's real easy to start becoming very complacent. One of the virtues of having turn, change, changing administrations and churn in the, the White House and churn in the executive branch and the, the legislature is that new people are taking a look at this and new ideas are up. You have a whole think tank community that is creating these ideas. And so you have these sort of policy entrepreneurs out there who are, are being able to change things. Um, the other thing I'd point out is when only one guy's in charge, that's the single point of failure, right? So if you wanna make these regimes squirm, start forcing that single point of failure to make 10 or 12 major strategic decisions in a very short period of time. They're going to make mistakes. Yeah. to screw it up and when they do you take advantage of it again that's why you go on the offensive you fall. one of the takeaways is when you discourage dissent among your people you also discourage it among your colleagues and therefore you get a lot of groupthink. there's a book a political science book called groupthink back from the 1970s i think about that david i'm going to move on to another question if that's okay sure uh, okay uh because we have we have just um 10 minutes left, okay. a lot of questions. At what point would it be, nece- this is from Facebook uh, viewer, at what point would it be necessary for the US to provide weapons such as hypersonic missile technology and even nuclear technology to Taiwan to protect them against Chinese aggression? Now that's an easy question. <laughs> Anybody want to take a hit at that? Uh, I will, uh, 10 days after never. Um, no, I, I, there are a lot better ways to protect Taiwan than to start doing something like that. Um, that, that destroys the nonproliferation policy we've had for decades. Um, transferring nuclear weapons to any state is, is a huge threat. Um, it, it all but guarantees uh, a conflict across the straits and quite frankly, the hypersonic weapons we have when we when we field them are not things we want being leaked around. And so um, now there are a lot of other things we can do to protect Taiwan, and, and we should be doing those. Um, and not all of those are military in nature. Uh, again, getting back to the winning without war. But I, I'm not. I don't. I don't see an upside to doing that. Okay. Other comments, or I'll go to the next one. Okay. All right. Um, So here's one, another one from Facebook. Do you think that the measures that the U.S. has implemented against the dictatorship in Venezuela and Nicaragua will be enough to drive those regimes out of power, or will we have to use military force? Okay, uh, David. Well, uh, economic sanctions alone probably aren't going to be uh, enough. Um, 
but I'm certainly not advocating military force here. Um, it's going to be up to the people. We can help encourage the people. We can do a lot through um, information sharing, training possibly, um, working with allies and partners, you know, cutting off some of their international support. That's going to be important. Um, I, you know, it doesn't, there's lots of ways to have influence without um, using the military. I'd argue that while Venezuela was a high profile for a while, we've been sporadic in our application of these different instruments of statecraft that we've been talking about. And, you know, it's all, you know, it goes back to what Frank was talking about with prudence and our national interests. Um, you have to take into account our national interests and how much we're going to exert towards these different uh, international problems. We can't be the you know, policemen of the world. We have interests around the world. How do we respond in an appropriate manner? That's, that's where a strategic approach, I think, is uh, and having an integrated strategy and linking your strategy with your moral position and with your national interests. That allows you to have a clear definition and be able to clearly articulate and then execute your policies. Okay. Um, I've got another question here about NATO. You know, the, the current president, Mr. Trump, uh, had made quite a, an issue of 2% of GDP spending on defense. And I think because of that, some countries have stepped up to that responsibility. But the questioner asked, do you think NATO at its current state of readiness is strong enough as an alliance uh, or should we do something to improve it? Any comments on NATO in 2020? Frank? <laughs> you know, just because you're my boss doesn't mean you get to, uh, no, uh, sure. Um, you know, any, any alliance, maybe alliances are like marriages, they can always be stronger. Um, um, the, you know, I think, I think that there is a lot to complain about NATO and, and we've, you know, this administration is certainly not the first to complain about, um, the lack of, of budgetary support and so on. Um, I think that is in many cases, um, an overstatement, um, we gain, quite a bit from NATO, quite apart from whether the every nation is kicking in the, the promised percentage or not. Um, I think there's a lot of things we can do better. The first thing which is goes back to the threats I alluded to at the beginning of this, which is to address some of the political inroads that the Russians have made into the alliance itself, um, whether it's, again, pl placing pressure on a number of the, the the Eastern European states, um, inroads in attempts to influence Greece, attempts to influence Turkey. Um, those, those sort of political uh, efforts are much more dangerous to the long-term stability of the alliance than a budgetary problem. Um, that, that is a manageable issue. Yes, I'd love to see the Europeans spend more. Uh, no, they're not spending anywhere near enough. No, they're not taking their military instrument seriously enough. But there's other things that, that we gain from there. Right. Can I just comment on NATO? Number one, if it didn't exist, we'd probably want to create it. So I think it's, it's good in that sense. Number two, I think our adversaries would love to have such an international alliance of 20-some nations. 
who meet and have a headquarters in Brussels, et cetera. David, you have some comments on that? Well, just I, I do think that, you know, with this uh, COVID crisis, the pandemic, it's causing economic disruptions. It's going to be an economic downturn, recession for large parts of the world. That's going to exacerbate some of the tensions on military defense spending. That's going to require a better strategic approach. We're going to have to be, we had the luxury of being had, having strategic depth, having uh, the ability to spend money, use the military, spend down even some of the military advancements we're living off of from the 80s. Um, it's going to be a different environment in some ways, and we're going to need a better strategic approach. And if you're, you know, the countries that seem to do well with strategy are those that, you know, have one shot to get things right, or they may face uh, severe consequences. So, you know, we're not going to have quite the luxury that we had in the past, I think, just going forward for defense uh, spending and issues. So, you know, again, we need to keep our defense uh, spending up and our military strong. But to me, this argues that we need to redevelop our strategic culture so that we can have a, an integrated approach so that we don't have to get into these costly conflicts. We can shape the international environment in ways that are advantageous to us and our allies without actually having to resort to the military. And I think that can be done more cheaply through public diplomacy, economic statecraft, information. Um, but we need to invest in people and education and leaders uh, that can exercise and do these things. I, um, Michael, I, I wanted to just uh, observe that one of the greatest weaknesses I see in the Western Alliance is, this, is civilizational fatigue. Uh, both in Europe and to a certain extent here in the United States, where, where substantial uh, numbers of people seem alienated uh, from, from the societies that they inherited. Uh, they, they are, um, in, in Europe particularly, you have significant parts of the population who seem to be enjoying life and in the process not having children, uh, committing demographic suicide, uh, not even having enough uh, uh, demographic strength to be able to maintain a labor force depending upon immigration from uh, parts of the world which are not uh, interested, such as uh, some of these so-called refugees from, uh, from the Middle East who are not interested in assimilating into those countries and, and, um, and, and becoming part of Europe, but instead have created separatist enclaves, which I think are going to be incredibly deadly uh, for the future ability of, of many European countries to maintain uh, unity and sufficient uh, cultural strength in order to defend themselves. Okay, uh, excellent. Uh, I'm gonna close up now because we just have a couple minutes left. So um, thank, we thank the audience for joining us today. So we, we thank John and David and Frank for being our discussants today. We've been reminded of the challenges of our age, the age that America today faces. Uh, and 
my IWP colleagues have shown how thoughtful and innovative we have to be and how they are as teachers at this very special institute in Washington, D.C. at the corner of 16th and Church Street. You want to visit our wonderful headquarters. Uh, we have master's and doctoral programs. It's a wonderful small college. Anybody that is an undergraduate or is thinking about graduate school uh, for diplomats, warriors, and spies were your solution. So please check our website, iwp.edu. Their biographies are on there. The courses are listed, all those sort of things. Um, to be continued, we'll have another a set of these, but we want to thank again our audience and our discussants today on behalf of the, the our republic and keeping it very strong. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.